with a, more of an air of... Business. <laughs> you you did a business. Yeah, someone sees a dot biz and goes, you know what? That's a business. Seems like a reputable business. <laughs> huh. And speaking of businesses, welcome to another episode of Not Another Film Podcast. This is the movie podcast where we take movies that we used to love as kids and we re-examine them in the harsh, sobering light of 2018. Uh, we have our co-host today shaking his head at the introduction to this. It's just that the light is terrible. Yes, it's not a good light. It's not a good light. It's very opaque, though. It's kind of like looking through wax paper. Indeed. Yes, uh, and that's the voice you're hearing is one of Mr. Robert McLean. How are you doing today, Rob? I'm well, thank you. How Excellent. are you? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. Uh, Rob, you introduced the movie this week, uh, and we are doing a classic film, 1974's Blazing Saddles. Uh, this was, I know, one of my favorite movies as a kid. Um, so why why did you want us to watch this movie? Because it's hilarious and uh, also one of my favorite movies as a kid. Um, it was actually introduced to it by my parents because uh, it would show up on TV, I think. It must have because there were no VCRs in our house. Um, and I was VCR allowed... VCR-free home. As a, as a small child, uh, maybe grade school age, I was allowed to watch the farting around the campfire scene. <laughs> Which, of course, young Rob thought that was about the funniest thing he'd ever seen. Same. And we're all drinking coffee here today, and we may burst into a farting around the campfire scene. I'm going to try to be delicate, but... <laughs> no, that's nice of you. <laughs> I only know Lauren so well right now. <laughs> and I don't know that we've reached that. Our other co-host uh, sitting to my left is Miss Lauren Grace Thompson. How are you doing today, Lauren? Doing pretty good. Awesome. Uh, so what is your experience with Blazing Saddles? Uh, same. I mean, I watched this probably when I was too young to watch this movie. <laughs> I can't remember the exact age, but I remember uh, fragments of this movie will pop up from time to time. Until you and I went to watch it, I think, um, I think it was like last year at the Music Box. Mm-hmm. I went to see it that, and I hadn't seen it for years at that point, but like it was one of those where I don't, nec- I didn't necessarily remember the movie as a whole, but I remembered fragments of it, like the, the campfire scene. I remembered him holding himself hostage very, very Such vividly. A, an amazing scene. I remembered the scene where they're playing chess, and I remembered the musical number, the eternal amazing musical number, I'm Tired, oh my. which I relate to more and more every passing year of my life. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, that gets better. I can't oh. wait. I can't wait. Um, Do we get to like be as amazing as Madeline Kahn, though, in, uh, our, in our ripe we age? We can only fucking who, hope. Who, who among us ever can aspire to that? <laughs> when that scene happened, you just, like, he just went crazy. It was great. Oh, my God. You're just I, like, we are not worthy, I think was the exact phrase that you used. I think I did. so yeah. true. I, uh, she's one of the, the handful of celebrity deaths that actually made me genuinely, personally yeah. sad. Mm-hmm. Devastating. I'm, that's, and um, in the same vein, uh, that's how Gene Wilder was from yes, Maine. Yeah. yeah. Grew that's, up the, that's the reason we went to see the music box. They were doing a uh, marathon because we saw Willy Wonka and then we saw mm. this. Blazing Saddles, which was, I thought was really weird, but I think this will lead us into the conversation about the movie. I thought it was odd that that was the double feature they chose instead of Willy Wonka and Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Especially since Young Frankenstein was not only a starring role for Dean Wilder in that movie, but he was a co-writer on the script. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of odd to me because I know he had nothing really to do with the writing of this movie, but upon watching it, it kind of just shows how amazing Gene Wilder is as an actor that he can be this incredible presence in a movie that does not overtake the movie itself. He serves exactly the purpose that Jim needs to serve in this movie. And so 
as manic as his Franken sorry Frankenstein yes. is. <laughs> Thank you. He um, is so laconic and just laid back yeah. to a fault in this one. I think that's kind of awesome. It's fantastic. His performance is remarkable in this movie. Um, so let's go back to 1970. Oh wait, I didn't talk about my. Uh, Experience yeah, in this you movie. want to know about you. Yeah, of course. Let me talk about myself for a bit. Don't be so withholding. You're right. Ah, oh, fine. God, it's so hard to get a read <laughs> on you. You're so difficult. So I'm Jewish, and Mel Brooks is a really <laughs> big deal <laughs> for our family. <laughs> um, I would say Mel Brooks is bigger than Moses in our household, um, but truthfully, that's discerning. The, the light. lights just flicker Moses very really ominously. Moses <laughs> got really pissed. Um, but wow. um, we grew up with Mel Brooks movies uh, constantly in our home. I remember watching... Um, this was actually one of the last ones I watched, but I remember being introduced to History of the World Part 1 very early. I must have been like 9 or 10 when I saw that. When you're done, I have a story about that movie, too. Ooh, Continue. yes. I can't wait, because <laughs> I love History of the World Part 1. Um, and then Young Frankenstein watched that very early on as well. And then finally came to this when I was like 11 or 12. My dad was, I guess, like, oh, you're old enough to watch this movie. (laughs) And just thought it was hilarious and did not understand any of the uh, racial implications or the the act, what like subversive shit this movie was actually doing until rewatching it later on. I've probably seen this movie like maybe every year since I was 12. It's one of my favorite comedies of all time. Um, Rob, you wanted to say something about just History re- of the World? Just real as a sidebar, uh, History of the World Part 1 was the first R-rated movie I saw in a theater. Wow. When I was, in, I was in sixth grade, we were in the midst of a move. My dad had been working out of town. My three older sisters were in college, just me and my mom. She says, I'm going to take you to this movie, and my sisters were outraged that, <laughs> that I got to go. But the funny part was, there were moments of that movie where I was trying not to laugh because I didn't want to have to explain to my mom how I knew that condoms were funny, for oh. instance. My mom was trying not to laugh because she didn't want to have to explain to me why <laughs> condoms, for an example, were funny. Um, so anyway, that was my sidebar for History of the World Part 1. There were huge moments of this movie, though, that when I watched as a kid, I laughed at, still, regardless of whether I got the joke, just because of the way that the joke was framed or the rhythm of the joke. Mel Brooks follows along with like a really old-school Hollywood idea of, of like Marx Brothers kind of like following rhythm and setups of joke that like, even if you don't exactly know the reference that he's making or know what the joke is, you can get it just based on like the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
raped. <laughs> and just this, like the somber delivery of that list, I was like, I would have never thought to do this in, a, in an audition. And I like to fancy myself someone who like has comic impulses. Yeah. <laughs> and I would have never thought to do something like that. And I found myself wondering last night for the first time in that moment if that was scripted or if scripted it's cattle stampeded and people raped. Yeah. And, and just, if that was a switch on the fly or if that was scripted. That's, that was yeah. my big question of the night last And there were a few things in this movie that were... I mean, this movie was meticulously scripted. It had about five writers on it. Um, One and of the few times that having five writers actually paid off it, in yeah, the history of film. Really? Uh, and one of those writers, one of the main reasons this movie got made was Richard Pryor. So uh, as a lot of people may know, listening to a podcast about Blazing Saddles, Richard Pryor was the original choice for Black Bart, um, who was played in the movie by Clement Little. And he could not get the movie made with Richard Pryor. The studios wouldn't greenlight it because they thought it would be too offensive. Well, he, he was... Um... <laughs> He, I'm not going to say he was divisive, but he wasn't. He he was. He stirred things up. Yeah, and that was that as uh, that was his mo. And it probably it wouldn't have been, I think, as big a box office draw. Yeah. For, for for the market that as big a market as I think Mel Brooks was hoping to get. Yeah, and speaking of box office, what uh, what do you think that the the budget on this movie was, Lauren? Ian, don't ask me about this. You In know that I'm always wrong. 1974. I don't. Okay, what was another movie that year? Young Frankenstein. Okay, you're not <laughs> helping me. I'm really bad at this game, guys. I don't know what a lot of money is or a little bit. Is well, okay, so we, we talked about how a movie like Scooby-Doo in 2002, that all rhymed, was yeah. $80 million. Okay, so like 20? Twenty million dollars in nineteen seventy-four. I don't know. You always sound like it's wrong. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to say in 1974. I don't know. $7 million. $7 million. $2.6 million. Great, great. The budget of this movie is $2.6 well, million. Don't I look stupid. You got egg on your face, you millennial. You um, always throw that question to me first. You always <laughs> look so dumb. Well, here, I'll throw this one to you then. How much money do you think this movie made? <laughs> no, not to me. It's not to Rob. <laughs> All right, Rob? Um, I'm going to say it made $20 million. $20 million. I also have a poor gauge of things mm -hmm. like this. Gotcha, gotcha. That's why I ask these questions. I once asked if a billion dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> I think a billion dollars. It's a relative question. It depends who you ask. Exactly. Yeah. And what year you ask it. And if the billion is real. Yes. 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 That's the biggest thing to take <laughs> into account. So, Lauren, how much money do you think uh, Blazing Saddles made? Um, Worldwide. You know what? I'm going to go 20 million and one. So oh, you price is right in Yes! Well, unfortunately, Lauren is closer. Uh, the answer is $119 million. That's Winning more by technicality. <laughs> this movie was a huge box office smash, which shocked Mel Brooks because, uh, or didn't necessarily shock Mel Brooks, shocked the studio, shocked Warner Brothers, because when he showed the movie to the studio execs for the first time, there apparently was not a laugh in the house. <laughs> no, none of the studio execs laughed. So what he did was he rounded up a bunch of the temps and workers at Warner Brothers and did a private screening for them, and they lost their shit <laughs> and thought this movie was a goddamn masterpiece. And so from there, he was like, okay, the people who this movie is for are getting it. I'm going to stick to my guns and, and do and deliver this movie. It's not for the suits. It's really not for the suits. Uh, the original title for this movie was actually called Tex-X. It was a playoff of Malcolm X. 
in the in the south or yeah. in uh, in the old west. Yes, that one uh, didn't stick around very long. No, that uh, I'm glad I'm glad they tried. Yeah, Blazing Saddles is actually a, a title really late to the game. It was originally Tex X, then Black Bart, then the Purple Sage. These were all just names that they were like, this is, this sounds like a, a, an old hokey Western movie. <laughs> and then eventually, uh, the as the story goes, Mel Brooks was in the shower one day and the words Blazing Saddles shot in his head like the name Dirk Diggler stuck in Mark Wahlberg's head. <laughs> and that was history. And he had uh, Blazing Saddles. What is it about the shower that makes it so conducive for ideas? I think it's that sweet, sweet California water that uh, <laughs> they just have so much of right now. Okay. Um, yeah. To all of our California listeners, sorry about that joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those, fe- like, being in the shower, I guess, is one of those few <clears throat> times where you, you have permission to, like, not do anything else. You don't have to feel like you have to multitask, I guess. Yeah. I'll buy that. Like, you're, where you, like, give your brain permission to just, like, oh, I can think about that thing that I do. I'm usually, I'm like, that's stupid. Yeah. I thought up this podcast while in the shower, so Did great you? ideas. There you go. So many great ideas. So many great ideas. I was in the shower listening to another podcast and thought about, what if I made a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, some other fun stuff about this movie. We'll go into just kind of the general story of this movie, but you don't really need to because it's such a big movie. I feel like so many people have seen it, and if you haven't seen it, just go watch it. It's such a classic movie. Turn on TNT. It's probably on right now. No, but don't. Don't watch it on TV because yes. it's all going to be censored. Currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Yes. Do it. Included. Included in Amazon Prime. So the basic gist of the movie is we open up with the building of the railroad out west in 1874. Um, and these, you know, white railroad... Uh, bosses. Yeah, bosses, I guess is the, the word. The... The white people who work there are ordering around all the people of color there, the black people and the Chinese people that are there working on the railroad together. And we get some crazy uses of the N-word in the first, like, three minutes of this movie. They throw you right into the deep end with that one. Yes. Uh, apparently, Slim Pickens, who plays Taggart, who is, one, I guess, the main... Uh, boss on the railroad had such a hard time saying the n-word to Clavon Little because he liked him so much as a person that uh, Clavon Little had to take him to the side one day and say hey I know these aren't your words this is what we're doing right now we're punching racism in the face was the way he phrased it and that kind of became the tagline that they all used to get them through some of these difficult parts of the movie was we're all here to punch racism in the face Mm-hmm. make this movie together. Awesome. It's so yeah. awesome. I loved hearing that. Um, but <laughs> uh, they ask them to, uh, the, the white bosses ask the people who work on the railroad to start singing a song to help them work and of course start giving them all of these uh, spirituals to sing, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and whatnot, uh, Camp Town Ladies. <laughs> and um, Clevon Little classes it up in a way that we get everything we need to know about his character, literally in this first joke, mm-hmm. where he and the rest of the railroad workers start doing a four-part harmony a cappella version of uh, I Get a Kick Out of You from <laughs> Anything Goes. <laughs> um, and it's just perfect. It's yeah. such an amazing introduction to his character in one joke and is so fucking funny the way that it plays out, and then to get to see all of the white people then start to sing Camp Down Ladies and freak out and do this crazy dance. <laughs> to their exp- There's, like, guys raising the roof. There's, like... And yet again, the reaction shots are great because they're just like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. 
And uh, so long story short, we get, uh, they get sent out and they get stuck in quicksand, uh, Clavon Little and uh, his friend Charlie, and essentially gets bombarded and called enough names by Slim Pickens that he hits Slim Pickens over the head with a shovel. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes. Uh, and gets sentenced to be hanged uh, in the city. Do we know where, where this first part is set? Does it matter? No, it's where curious. It's wherever the governor of this state, I'm making air quotes, um, <laughs> is. Um, but no, we, that is never made clear. Very little matters. No, it's, uh, it's, in the, it's in the Old West. Yes. yes, and that leads us to the introduction of Harvey Corman's character, Hedley Lamar. Rob, would you like to talk to us a little bit about who Hedley is? Yes, he is the... Um, I forget what his official title is. Is he Lieutenant Governor? I think so. Um, to, to Does Governor it matter? Le- it doesn't, but he, he is a higher up um, to Governor Lepetamane, and he is... Um, I don't even know how to describe him. He's got... Uh, he's very strict. He's hilarious. But also there's a little bit of a kink to him, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. Yeah. He's like if Rex Harrison had been, like, sexually starved for his entire <laughs> life. I actually was thinking last night that um, that uh, Head- Headley-, Headley Lamar would be an interesting choice to play Angelo. He would in, be in so good. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same. I was going to say mixed with Angelo, but I wasn't sure how <laughs> versed in Shakespeare our audience, all, all 15 uh, they, they people who listen to this They are. can look it up. It's up. Measure for measure. It's a play. It's weird. Angelo's a jerk. Um... <laughs> But we're not here to talk about that. No, we'll um, talk about it at the end. But he, Harvey Corman is one of those actors that, since the Carol Burnett show, has been one of the one of the people that taught me what funny is, mm-hmm. um, and he does not fail to deliver in in this. Uh, not the original choice for this role. Original choice for the role was Gene Wilder. Oh. He was offered. Gene Wilder was offered the role of Hedley Lamar from Mel Brooks. Very early on, and Gene Wilder said, I don't think that I sync up with the energy of this character. I would love to play Jim. That's a good call on his part. Mm-hmm. But I, I, think that, I think that if Gene Wilder and had played this role, I think he and Mel Brooks would have been too similar in energy, I think, in a The way. manic energy, yeah. I yeah. think they both have this kind of yeah. manic energy that I think the energy of the other one would have kind of just brought it out in the other, and it just wouldn't have worked, because I think what is so brilliant about Headley in this movie is just... Him calibrating when he's like when he's keeping it under wraps and when it kind of boils over that just perfectly complements his scene partner. Yeah, I think he's such a great scene partner to everyone he's in the scene with yeah. because it's just he's calibrating his energy and his wildness with when I don't know just the handoff of like who gets to be crazy in any given moment is so like sharp and so well done. Yeah, yeah. In, in my mind, when I think of a mustache-twirling villain, I always think of Harvey Corman in this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just just the, the, the tenor of his voice, and like everything <laughs> about him, I'm just like, oh, you are... It screams bad guy. <laughs> like, yeah. He's sniveling. He's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. mm. and, uh, and we do get the introduction to um, one of two Mel Brooks roles in this movie, Governor <laughs> William J. LePenamane. Which um, I'm just going to say is the pinnacle of Mel Brooks' performances in mm-hmm. any of his movies. I would, I would be, I would probably have to agree with you. I mean, I, I want to place um, President Spaceballs up there because it meant that Spaceballs was huge for me as a kid. Sure. Um, but I also know now, apparently a lot of people don't, don't care for Spaceballs. I'm not a fan. Really? Yeah. It just came out too late? The parody happened too late? Maybe, um, 
I feel like, you know, you, I'm going to say, well, the jokes are so stupid. The jokes are stupid in all his movies. Yeah. Like the, the gags in Blazing Saddles are stupid, yeah. but they make me laugh. They do so much less in Spaceballs, um, and I'm not sure why. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if it, if it was parodying something I was too close to because Star Wars was so, yeah, so such big. a thing for me. Uh, maybe it's that, uh, or maybe for whatever reason, I just didn't find it as funny. Like Pizza the Hut. I, I was going to say, I, I can't was find... Just, that's just too on the nose and stupid. And so, gross. And, and gross, but I'm, I, <laughs> I not, usually don't have I a mean, problem with gross. to me, it just feels like it's not as tight, I think, to me. I think that they, they let it breathe a little bit more, which I think... Mm-hmm. And they, let, they sit in jokes a little bit longer, uh, so I think that it kind of lets the audience kind of wallow in it a little bit longer. And the bits are good. I just think that, like, Blazing Saddles works because, like, it barely gives you time to, like, finish laughing from the last joke before they are onto something. Not just the next joke in the scene, but, like, a completely different turn to the scene. Mm -hmm. I think that, it like, if something doesn't work, then it doesn't matter because three seconds later you're on to another one. It does not give you time to wallow in anything that if it doesn't work for you. Yeah, I will say, and the thing that I was really noticing last night, that this movie and Young Frankenstein do... Uh, just incredibly well is the jokes happen and only like occasionally the joke will stop the plot for the joke but a lot of the time especially with Clevon Little shit it's just good writing it's excellent wordplay yeah the joke is the way that he and and Gene Wilder are conversing in the scene and it just plays out like their whole first meeting scene which we'll get to in a second is just beautifully laid out with the, you know, man who drinks like that is going to die. When? When? Like, we immediately get everything we need to know about the characters. We get a a really funny joke. And their tempo is so different than the manic energy of the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. that it immediately sets them apart as our two heroes. I also think it's just a brilliant deploying of Gene Wilder because of what... I don't know where... I also don't know where this falls in the chronology of his movies. But I think that it, like... 1974. Even, even having... Thanks, Ian. That helps me so much. Um, knowing his other work and knowing that... like I've seen this movie before, and I think every time I come into this, I kind of expect young Frankenstein a little bit. And hmm. I expect that energy to come in. And then the undercut where it's completely the opposite of that is funny in itself. I think seeing Gene Wilder kind of play against what I expect from him is funny in itself. Like Just having those, like, when... You always expect him to go I mean, in a different the, direction. The, the simplicity of... I might be skipping ahead if you're no, talking about no, the No, no, let's, let's do it. Let's about Gene Wilder. I don't think we're going to go into the plot play by play. Yeah, no, this movie I don't think we need to. So just talk about whatever scene you want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, well, I'm still in the same scene. I'm just jumping ahead a little bit because the, the simplicity of his story about the kid and how yeah. he stopped being the, the, the Waco kid yeah. is... He got shot in the ass by like a six-year-old. another great example of, like... It ends with a punchline, but it's the joke that is telling us who he is, mm-hmm. um, and not just not mm-hmm. just a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the scene where he uh, the the classic line of "Well, my name is Jim, but most people call me Jim," <laughs> and he takes that long pause before Jim, and his eyes are watery and glazed over. And you see him go through like three or four different emotions <laughs> before he finally gets to Jim. And it's such an amazing bit of acting. 
Um, another thing I found out apparently, uh, which I did not know, is Clavon Little was a big Broadway actor. Oh. He had a Tony and a Drama Desk Award under his belt when he came on to this movie. What was he in? Um, a movie, uh, a I'm show on Wikipedia called, right now. Keep talking. I think it's called Pure Life or something like mm-hmm. that. It's uh, he plays a um, a black minister who comes into a town during Jim Crow, and it's a musical and kind of and lifts up the spirits of the town and they overcome. Um, their oppressors, from what I understand, uh, the the Wikipedia summary that I read of the plot, I had never even heard of the musical before. But Clavon Little had a huge theater background, and Gene Wilder obviously had a huge movie background, and so they would teach each other things about like how to act for the stage versus how to act for film, because Clavon Little had only been acting for the screen for about four or five years before he got Blazing Saddles. Um, and I believe he was tipped off to Mel Brooks from Richard Pryor. Was this his first collaboration with Mel Brooks? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think it and only. Was he in... Wait, who, I, he... I, I was, Little. Oh, okay. No, I was... I thought we were talking about... I thought we'd skipped over to Gene Wilder. Oh, no, because Gene Wilder was the producers, which was 69. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, but no, I don't think... Yeah, I, I don't think... I, I don't think I've seen Cleavon Little in anything else, to be honest. I The only other thing I really remember him from was uh, really a stay-tuned movie for this podcast uh, called Once Bitten, a vampire movie from 85 with Jim Carrey, um, where he plays, like, just oh. the cool the cool vampire. Um, but Jim Carrey, huh? Oh, yeah. Young wow. Jim Carrey. Uh, so to, to see another Cleavon Little performance, I'd have to endure... Young Jim Carrey hey, flouncing man. his arms around. You didn't see Earth Girls Are Easy when we watched it. It's young hot surfer Jim Carrey. I did see it, and I still am mad on Jim Carrey. <laughs> oh, I used to like that movie a lot as a kid. Um, maybe I that'll be that my choice for the podcast. That movie super fun, but yeah, no. Um, so then, so we get our introduction to Gene Wilder. He is the Waco kid. Um, he's the fastest hands in the West. And essentially, the how Black Bart becomes the sheriff in this town called Rock Ridge is because Hedley Lamar wants to build the railroad through it and figures that the best way to get those people out of town is to send them a sheriff that will make them hate him so much that they'll all pack up and leave. Yes. So they send them Bart. Bart comes riding in with his Gucci saddle, uh... Past Count Bassie. <laughs> Which, interestingly enough, I took a European film history class in college. Oh. And um, the, the woman who taught it was... get this, it. You went to college. <laughs> I know. I'm pretty... I mean, I'm bragging. But she used that moment of Count Basie being in the desert as an example of the difference between diagenic and non-diagenic sound in movies. <laughs> uh, di- I hope I have this right. Diagenic sound <clears throat> being... Uh, sound that is coming from the environment. Yes. And, and uh, so that was her. And she even showed us that clip of thinking it's just non-diagenic sound, it's just the soundtrack, and then there he is in the middle of the desert. Um, so uh, this is a pretty fancy movie. If and, it made it into the yeah. European film history. It's very yeah, exactly. Well, it's and, been, well <laughs> indeed. We're going to get to it. It's one <laughs> of Why the, do we have to take it in order? We, we don't have to take it in order. Now. I don't this, give a fuck. The, um, but it's our fir- that's kind of our first introduction to how much winking at the audience we're going to get and how much we're going to break the fourth wall with this movie. Um, but he rides into town. The people of Rockridge not enthused that they have a black sheriff. Uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, and Clavon Little goes into one of the most impressive bits of physical comedy ever on film, which is him holding himself up. Dude, 
I fucking love that scene so much. What I loved He's was great. us watching it last night with a bunch of people that had never seen it before. Well, to be fair, two. Two people who had never seen it before. <laughs> but, um... Like, percentage of the group-wise, it, it, it was a large percentage. percentage. But cackling. Higher percentage than you would expect. Cackling over this. And then to ask uh, the person who's like, oh, have you seen this movie before? And they're like, no, I've never seen it before. But just, like, being able to recognize kind of just the the timeless comic genius of that scene, mm-hmm. it's, it just goes to show just how well this movie stands up. And God, oh, we get another amazing punchline to an amazing bit that does not need a punchline, but you get the, you are so talented. And they are so dumb. dumb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do want to go back and talk a little bit about uh, William J. LePetamain, uh, about Mel Brooks uh, and, and his perfect role in this. He apparently had a lot more scenes in this movie that all wound up on the cutting room floor. Oh, where are they? And I want to see them. I do too, but I think he's in it the perfect amount. Well, uh, yeah, agreed. I, I I don't want them to be in the movie. <clears throat> I just want to see them. Yeah. Are just, they not on some special edition? Maybe. I've, oh, I have maybe. a DVD of this, but I don't think it's got any deleted scenes on mm. it. But this, I read this on IMDb last night. Apparently, the character of Governor William J. LePetamain was named after a popular turn-of-the-century French performer, Joseph Pujol, whose stage name was LePetamain. Pajol was famous for his remarkable control of the abdominal muscles, which enabled him to inhale air into his rectum and expel the air upon command, farting at will. His stage name combines the French verb peter to fart with the name with mane, uh, with main, the suffix meaning maniac, which translates to fart maniac. The profession was also referred to as the flautist, the fartur, or the fartiste. He told stories that punctuated with flatulence, demonstrated his ability to blow out a candle flames from two feet away with his back turned, and performed La Marseille and popular tunes with farts. So basically, uh, the name that Mel Brooks chose... The look chose, on Lauren's face right now is, uh, is delightful, by the way, for those of you The name that Mel Brooks' character has translates to Governor William Fart Maniac. <laughs> I just want to know how. How a person can do that? Can fart on command. I can't even tell what muscle to flex. Me neither. I'm like, I'm sitting here, I'm just like, how? I bet if you <laughs> asked like 12 year old like Ian, second, he would know. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Part of me was like, I'm going to try this. And it didn't work, guys. If we get a fart on this recording, we're keeping it. <laughs> we if, know. I, if I make it happen, you got to keep it on. Well, that is a fun fact to know and tell. But that's fantastic. I didn't know a human being could do that. That's so fascinating. But to to go with Mel Brooks, you you actually put it really well last night into why, let's kind of get into a little bit of why Mel Brooks works in this movie as opposed to other Mel Brooks movies. Um, And the way you put it last night, which I think is kind of a genius way of putting it, is Mel Brooks is a great seasoning. He's not a great main dish. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to expand on that a little bit. Well, I think he's at his best when... The, the, the movie I was using as the example was High Anxiety, which I think another Mel Brooks movie that is parodying the Alfred Hitchcock uh, canon of movies. And I think it parodies Hitchcock real well. I don't think it's very funny. Mel Brooks plays the lead character in it. Mm-hmm. And um, I just don't think he has the comedic chops as a performer to carry a character through an entire movie. I think it, I think it would, that would have been a much funnier movie if Gene Wilder had played that he's, role. He's not a protagonist. No, he's he's, um, he's a character and he's, actor, and he's a I don't brilliant know, I, character yes. actor. And I just think that the the physical comedy of William J. LePetamain 
is oh is God. so spot on, and it's and it's not just the physical comedy, the vis- the verbal comedy. Some of the the just the um, affairs of state must take precedence over the, the affairs, affairs of, of state. state. It, I mean, it, it's it's just brilliant. Him playing with the little paddle balls. Uh, the, uh, this is broken. Um, <laughs> Why do I always get the warped ones? <laughs> um, or or uh, I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Give the governor harumph. Harumph. Watch your ass. Watch your ass. Um, it's I don't know. It, it's, it's a per- it's one of just a, and that bit will always make me laugh. Um, it's a great melding of physical comedy and verbal uh, interplay, and it's you're right. It's just the correct amount. Oh, my God. Gentlemen, this bill is a huge step forward in the reputation of the insane gambler. Oh, it's just... It's so funny and such a weird performance that you're like... I, I don't know. I watch it, and I'm just one of those moments of just, what divine inspiration did you get to create this ma- this governor that is so just power hungry and stupid <laughs> that he's cross-eyed and puffing on a cigar literally straight out of a Marx Brothers short and uh, <laughs> and he has this like incredibly busty secretary who's in lingerie the entire time next to him so <laughs> his secretary Mrs. Stein <laughs> 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 the most gentile looking woman in the world sitting next to him it's just one uh, it's uh, i'm constantly in awe of those scenes whenever i go back and revisit this movie because it's something that i'm like this shouldn't it should not work and you're right it is it's it is out of a marx brothers movie just the the pacing of it his manic like that's that is a groucho role i think if ever there was one um, and there's so many there's so many long takes he just sets a camera and they go like i was really there were a few moments last night thinking about doing this episode watching those scenes and a lot of the scenes with Clavon Little and uh, Gene Wilder and really just kind of counting in my head and watching for the edits. And there are some really like nice 40 second takes and like even like 20, 30 second takes. I think like the average take in this movie is somewhere probably between 15 to 30 seconds, which is crazy for a movie, especially now when you get a movie like, and you know, this is an extreme example, but like Scott Pilgrim, came out, you know, eight years ago, where the average take of that movie is one to two seconds. <laughs> yeah, the, the amount of edits in that movie make it so that it's almost one to two seconds between each different huh. uh, cut. And this movie just lets scenes play out, um, which I think adds to the huge love for theater that uh, Mel Brooks has. And just like the, the impeccable training of the actors and and writing of the movie mm-hmm. that they can just trust the writing and the actors just let it rip yeah and it works <laughs> let it rip uh, yeah so what were you just looking up just now oh no i just googled how to fart on command <laughs> <laughs> what'd you learn um any helpful youtube no, videos I was, just, I was just giggling because there's so many youtube videos from like 2009 like <laughs> is there a, a resurgence in um fla- what do they call it Flatulence. Fla- no, but, but flautism? Because, well, that sounds like playing a That's flute. That's playing a flute. I think um, it's just a playful play on playing the flute. Um, but there are so many videos. Like, the first video that came up was a video from 2009. This is an educa- it's just called an educational video on how to fart on command. And, like, the thumbnail photo is just a dude reclining on his side with his head up, just, like, smiling, like, Hey! <laughs> <laughs> just like his butt up in the air. And it's just it's so fucking funny. The idea of watching like a 10 minute video. I did also learn there was like a wiki how on it. That apparently you just like try to swallow a lot of air and then you wait three minutes. And then hopefully you just got a fart. 
All right, we're going to test this out starting now. <laughs> is this the royal we? I don't, this, I don't yes, know. Yes, yes, this is the royal we. Listeners, just play me. along. <laughs> um, but so, I just thought it was so fucking funny to me, an, an educational video. That's some shit that I, would put, I wouldn't put past. I'm not, if I was a, a substitute like teacher in a gym class, I might put it on. <laughs> <laughs> just be like, kids, have fun. <laughs> I'm going to go read a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that the gym teacher comes in and is like, all right, guys, today we're going to learn how to fart on command, and then we'll play kickball basketball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some crazy sport I made up with my ex-wife's son. <laughs> Uh, I want to now get to, um, in my opinion, and we'll talk about this uh, now because I think this is up for uh, debate, but in my opinion, the MVP of this movie, um, which is Madeline Kahn. It's hard to pick an MVP, but boy, she's always going to be on any shortlist in anything she's in. Madeline Kahn comes into this movie as the burlesque performer Lily von Stupp. A uh, a German song and dance gal who is in the Teutonic Titwillow. The Teutonic mm. Titwillow, <laughs> 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 who comes into town to perform. I'm assuming she's just on tour, um, and her whole purpose for um, for what Headley wants her to do is to seduce uh, Bart and then leave him so that he'll be distraught. It's it's I don't think it's a very sound plan. It's if not I, a if sound I can just throw that out there. All. I think I think we'll leaving him sad. Yes. Yeah, he'll be so heartbroken then the whole town will go away. It's I'm, not I'm, a good plan, but it's exactly the plan that I believe Headley would go for. Uh, yes, I do not have a, a credibility or a, mm. a plausibility issue, but I just think I don't think he thought the end game no, out. No, 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 he definitely didn't. But whatever it took to get uh, her on the stage, if you will, mm-hmm. um, I'm all for. Yeah, and so she sings this song called I'm So Tired um, <laughs> about the how taxing it is to be a woman in show business and uh, putting it lightly. In show business. <laughs> yes. And Mel Brooks wrote the song, wrote the lyrics, wrote everything, and even Mel Brooks claims that it is the dirtiest song he has ever and will ever write. Really? Wow. Yes. Um, and what I didn't realize until also seeing this on IMDb is the opening chords and melody to when she first comes out is the opening few notes to Springtime for Hitler. Amazing. <laughs> I can see that. He's plagiarizing himself. Exactly. Especially Constantly. once you add the dancing men at the end, the, the parallels are just really there. Yeah, yeah, the, the Bismarck dancers that oh come God. in. It's so funny. I would also funny. like to point out how, um, how Madeline Kahn is an excellent singer. Yes. Like she has an amazing voice, and it's really difficult for someone who can sing that well mm-hmm. to sing as like half step <laughs> off key as she did throughout that it song, so and it's brilliant. Impressive to watch good singers. It takes a lot of talent to sing as badly as she does in this movie. She's in this movie for maybe eleven minutes. Yes. I would say eleven or twelve minutes. She is one of the three Oscar nominations this movie. Did, I didn't realize she As she should be. Nominated think, for Best Supporting Actress. I think when you think of this movie, I think that with a, it's a movie with such iconic scenes in it and such iconic images and lines. And it's, it's, it, it's amazing that a character who is not in as much of the movie as some of the other players is still one of the images that immediately pops into your brain when you think of this movie. That, like, it is that, I think, in the top three most iconic, like, 
images in my head when I think of this movie is her <clears throat> saying, like, everything below the waist is kaput. <laughs> Which I still think is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. God damn it, I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see she's tired? <laughs> I remember when me and my mom went to go see this oh at God. the music box because, I, I mean, I've always appreciated the scene and really loved the scene. It wasn't until we saw it at the music box last year, seeing it in a theater full of people and everyone losing their shit collectively mm-hmm. at this moment that I realized kind of how genius this performance is and this whole sequence is. Mm-hmm. And it's probably my favorite sequence in the entire movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, next it's to the ending, favorite. I think the ending is fucking perfect. I think there movie. are amazing like lines and and stuff. And I think in terms of just set pieces of the movie, this is the set piece of the movie. It's the centerpiece of it all. It's the Tom Cruise like climbing a skyscraper, <laughs> blazing saddles. It is like it is just like a marvel to watch beginning to end. You're just. I think my oh my favorite moment. I well I love that line, but I also just love when she does the key change at the end and starts like she, she goes just up raises singing. it. She just, it's the same like mono note, but she just goes up and it's just, just lazily singing so and doing the choreography. That and then her like them carrying her around the stage and she's just like mildly inconvenienced by the choreography. I last night I had never noticed her. Um, Wrapping herself in the curtain and then so just, just so she can do a quick reveal. Yes. I'm like, that's just. And then her, like, putting her hand back to, like, lean against the pillar and, and then missing it. <laughs> and then just kind of being oh. like, ah, fuck it. I just love the general air of, like, fuck it. It's so, it's so beautifully underplayed because she just, it is that. It's like, it's. Oh, I'm kind of screwing up the choreography, but I don't even care enough about the choreography. It's again. kind of the perfect melding of, like, stage style and movie style because I think on stage you never would have been able to pull off like if this was a musical like a stage musical which I'm mm-hmm. sure they thought about at some point I don't it never would have worked because they would have had to make it so much flashier and the beauty is that that you can see up close yeah. and that you can see her face yeah. I think if you had tried to it's kind of it's this perfectly theatrical moment in the way that it works but if the camera was not as up close as it was it would not work to capture the beautiful work that she is doing yes. yeah I will say I, I went to see um, one of the first Broadway shows I ever saw was young Frankenstein um, because I was obsessed with that movie and we got to see Megan Mullally do uh, Madeline Kahn's role uh-huh. in that show oh, yeah. and I was very hesitant about it. I was excited to see the show, but I was like, okay, we're getting Roger Bart playing John uh, Gene Wilder, and we're getting uh, uh, Megan Mullally playing Madeline Kahn. I don't know how I'm going to... All right. And she was she was kind of an amazing contemporary musical theater stand-in. I thought she did something very new with the role that also captured a lot of the same just craziness of her character in that. See, the, it's one of those moments where it's like, I think the only person I would ever want to see even attempt to do something like this on stage would be someone like Megan Mullally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but goddamn, she's... I think that you wouldn't... It's just one of those things where I don't know that it would be not as good. I like, wouldn't want to see would never it. be able to do the same thing. Yes. It, the joke would have to fundamentally change. Yeah. It would have yes. to be a completely different joke. It is, it's just this perfect thing where it's just it wouldn't have been able to work any other way. With any other actress shot in any other way, with any other song, I don't think it would have worked. No, yes. it's pretty perfect. Um, this leads into the seduction scene with Black Bart. Um <laughs> Where? Gotta slip into something more comfortable. Oh my I god. I feel refreshed. I feel refreshed. 
God, I love her so much. I also would like to point out that she apparently writes in her accent because the note that she sends to Black Bart, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I forget what the word is, but it was... Um, come to my womb. Come to my womb. <laughs> anyway. Yours twooey. <laughs> um, oh my God. But there's, well, we get to one of the first jokes that was cut out of uh, the movie that is not in the cut that we watched last night is in the dark where she <laughs> says, uh, is it true what they say uh, about how, how well endowed you people are? And then it's dark and she just, you, the scene cuts out on her saying, it's true, it's true, it's true. And there was a line that had to get cut apparently where he says, uh, baby, you are sucking on my arm right now. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and that was, uh, Warner Brothers said that was too far. Oh God, <laughs> it's important so to know where the line is. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny though. <laughs> um, and then she, of course, the next morning is uh, fallen madly in love with him because of just what a, as she puts it, what a nice guy what he is. What a nice guy. What a nice Another guy. Schnitzengruben? Uh, <laughs> maybe 15 is my limit on Schnitzengruben. <laughs> um, we get to... Uh, uh, so I do want to talk a little bit about this, since this is a comedy, and it is a, a comedy where we're dealing with race in such an explicit way. And, I mean, there are, there are rape jokes in the movie. There are uh, racial jokes in the movie. Madeline Kahn gets slapped in this movie by Harvey Korman. It's kind of like a punctuation on the scene. And it is a little bit of a, of a joke. It's a physical gag just because of her reaction mm-hmm. to it. Because she kind of takes it along with like the rest of her personality. And when she gets it, she just goes, ah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like she's mildly inconvenienced <laughs> to be hit. But um, I don't know. I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about this, this moment. If it, d- is this a moment that we can still laugh at? Or does this um, re-examining it in this modern light, does it make it a little bit like, does it give us pause? It did give me pause last night, and I had forgot about it. I had forgot about, I had that, too. about that moment. Um, I still laughed at it, though, and you're right. It, her reaction is, is a big it's part, part of the joke. It, it, I felt it somehow gave me permission, and also given the fact that we laugh at so many things in this movie that it gets away with that another a lesser movie I don't think could because everyone... Everyone who's doing horrible things is ridiculous, mm-hmm. and we're we're laughing at them from the beginning. The joke is is about them. It's not about the the yeah. the joke of the slap is not the person getting slapped. The joke is the person doing the slapping. Like it's the same way that the, the like I, I think the all of the racial jokes are the joke is about how ridiculous the racists are. Yes, yes, that, like, yes. It is, that I, and well, I think that is crucial. Raising the roof to Camp Town Ladies. Yeah. <laughs> or there, there have been some movies that have used women getting slapped as a joke that I, I that has set very, very not well with me because I do, because it feels like in the moment, oh, the joke is just that a woman got slapped out of nowhere, mm-hmm. which I feel very strongly is not something that I'm comfortable with because then I, I, I was in the theater for Hateful Eight. We talked about this. Where yeah. it's like, I felt uncomfortable being a woman in a room of majority men who were laughing at a woman getting hit. Mm-hmm. Um, at the we, one woman in the movie, yes, really. And then the, but, but I think context is important because so much of that movie was also like, we were like the men were ridiculous, but also we were supposed to sympathize with them. So it, it felt like it was a moment where the joke was the slap itself, not them doing it. Yeah. But this, I feel like framing is important because we have set, because also it happens at the point of the movie that it does, where we have set up these characters as ridiculous, and and because we've seen them 
have similar moments throughout the movie where it is very clearly established they are the joke. <laughs> uh, that it didn't, in the moment, I, it, like, it gave me pause, but I wasn't, I wasn't bothered by it because I do, again, feel that the joke is on them. Yeah, the movie, the, the movie's punching up. And also it's the never movie, punching down. Also, the movie is specifically spoofing a type of movie mm-hmm. that, that has moments like that in it and has moments of racism and sexism. And it is something that kind of was going to come up. So it's like, how can we deal with that? And the way that they dealt with it is being like, this is fucking ridiculous. This is just another aspect of how ridiculous these characters yeah. are. The guy who has almost has a panic attack over not being able to find his rubber frog just slapped a <laughs> yeah. woman. Uh, Which I think, I was also the completely different thing. When the scene in the bathtub is just like, another thing where I'm like, I'm, this is a completely right turn. In you mean Shrek when Slim Pickens when Slim Pickens yeah. is is washing <laughs> Harvey Corman? In Shrek the Musical, they have an extended homage to that because there's a scene where Farquaad's in the bath, and it's to me I feel like that is an homage a bit where it's like oh, really? I can see the like yeah I can see the through oh. line between those two characters because also there's a reference in Shrek too to Blazing Saddles. It's just kind of like a similar absurdity. Interesting. Yeah. I need to go back and rewatch Shrek too. Yeah, I, I totally forgot. Yeah, because the, because when the gingerbread man becomes huge, he's Mongo. Oh, <laughs> Mongo just pawn in Game of Life. Yeah. Oh my God, what a great line. Um. So. What so yeah. Cool. I, I just wanted to unpack that a little bit because that was a moment last night watching it that gave me pause. And then, like you said, I was kind of like, well, her reaction gives me permission to laugh at this, but I also don't know if that's me wanting an excuse to laugh at something that I've laughed at my entire life, sure. or if that's me uh, trying to, you know, confront one of those things. Now that I've always kind of taken for granted in, in movies. No, and I think because it's a movie that I think is is still, by 2018 standards, a very brave movie in terms of the things that it is willing to satirize and the topics that it's willing to tackle. Topics that are still depressingly relevant right now. Yeah. That, like, there are certain scenes in this movie where I'm like, oh, this could have been made in 2018 for specifically the moment that we are in. And, like, there's the scene where he first appears and everyone pulls a gun on him mm-hmm. is, like, sadly, yeah. very, very sadly, super <laughs> fucking relevant right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that satire is still smart for the moment that we are in. Well, I almost wonder, could this movie be made today? I don't know. Um, maybe? I mean... I'm, for some, okay, Get Out just popped into my head. Sure, 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 um, sure. Like, we'll we'll get into try- recommendations for right, modern but analogs I'm, I'm, later. I'm but trying yeah. to just think of how, how has racism been satirized more currently? And that's the first thing I think of. I think, I, I think of what Ian is probably going to recommend as his modern analog. I think you, I think you know what which, I'm going to recommend. Do you want to just jump into that right now? Do you want to talk about it right now? Sure, why not? Let's talk about it now. Like, screw the format of this episode. Yeah. Um, but You're yeah. doing a good movie. You've already said. We're yeah, doing exactly. a good We're movie. doing a good so movie. This movie's an exception. Up. He's going to recommend something that is the, uh, the, the topical, uh, like, current version of that, and I'm going to talk about the silly version of it. So you go ahead and do um, Well, right we, we, Rob was on something with Get Out yeah. earlier, so I want to well, listen to... Well, just, it's, um, you know, it's another example of using a known movie trope or genre of horror in this case to to punch racism in the face yeah um and you know not a it's it's it is a comedy um it's not as broad clearly as blazing saddles um it uh you know it it does a better job like i think blazing saddles it was turning a mirror on racism of the day in which a bunch of people throwing the N-word around um, 
publicly or like with, with, with no fear of repercussion was kind of how things were. Mm-hmm. That was more prevalent then, at least that's, uh, maybe I'm making this up, but with Get Out, the racism is much more subtle and yeah. and unspoken but more insidious and it's in also with ways. the cover of being very woke like yes. it is it yeah. is a bunch of like the racism of today is people pretending to not be racist very aggressively and then underneath that like basically putting on the show of being accepting and then actually being incredibly racist yeah, yeah. so i guess that that would given given so little time to come up with this uh, part of the <laughs> yeah. podcast. You're welcome. Um, that I think that that would be be mine. Um, but of course, if you haven't seen Blazing Saddles, you should go watch that. Yes. Yeah. I part of me thinks this movie could not be made today, and I think it's for the pure and simple fact of like I think r- racial dynamics have not changed exponentially since 1974. And you know, I'm, I was not alive in 1974, but. Um, I can't imagine that they were like that much different. I think what it was uh, that possibly allowed a movie like this to get made um, was the false understanding that we are past a lot of it. So that we are looking at a lot of it in retrospect. Or that we, um, you know, I think it's only really been in the past maybe five to ten years really. Yeah, I'd say ten, probably since Obama's first term. Um that I even started to become aware that like, oh, we actually have not progressed as far as, as a lot of people, mostly white people, try to make uh, other white people believe that we have progressed. Mm-hmm. And now we're, you know, the sore is open, um, I, I think kind of necessarily so, so that we can see like how little growth we have actually done. So I don't think we would, I, I, would be interested to see, especially from a white filmmaker, uh, a movie coming out that is as brash as this and kind of is as freewheeling as this movie is uh, with its racial politics. I think I think uh, Jordan Peele could make this movie today. Yeah, Judd Apatow could not. Could not. No. no. Should yeah. not. Should not. <laughs> no. He probably has the means, but he should not. But he should not. And I think, I mean, uh, you know, if we're going to get into recommendations for the end of the movie, I think a movie that just came out very recently that I'm just like over the moon gaga for, um, which is Boots Riley's Sorry to, Sorry to Bother You, um, very much deals with a lot of these racial dynamics in a way that it is very much a, um, uh, a platform that the movie stands on. But the movie is also concerned with other things. The movie is also kind of satirizing, uh, you know, an, an office space or boiler room kind of movie. And capitalism. And it, capitalism it, it, it in general. It is a big, giant fuck you to capitalism. Yeah, and so, and it's a movie that has um, just as much uh, kind of satire in its belt to be able to deal with all of this. But and goes to similarly silly places. And si- Yes. This is the... David Cross does the white voice. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh my god, it's fucking brilliant. Um, but oh, that wasn't a spoiler. No, um, but also goes to, but is much angrier, and I think rightfully so. And is from uh, an African American writer director from Bro- mm-hmm. uh, Boots Riley, and because of that, we are getting to see a movie uh, like Blazing Saddles. And I did think of Blazing Saddles a lot when we went to go see it. Um, but we're seeing it from the perspective, almost like a um, reclaiming of the genre and of the this of the satirical genre. It's mm-hmm. much broader than something like Get Out. 
Um, and I, I mean, I was laughing out loud from beginning to end in that movie and then also horrified at things mm-hmm. that I was laughing at. I, I think one to keep an eye out for coming up is going to be, uh... Blind spotting? No, it's going to be also Black Klansman. Black Klansman, yeah, yeah. I think that's going to be, that one seems like it is similarly uh, coming to a, a similar place of, of approaching the absurdity. Yeah. Of racism. And um, granted, we're three white people yes, talking about if this If that wasn't right clear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That yes. was not clear. So as much as we we can't we yeah. can talk about this, but but I also do think that when you're talking about you know this movie was directed by a white man, I think it is also a crucial fact of this is that Richard Pryor helped write it. Yes, I think that that is a crucial thing for for I, I don't necessarily know that these topics like are are something that obviously you do not want to make a movie about that with a white filmmaker, but I think that that white filmmakers should not feel completely afraid of of casting people. Uh, of telling stories including people of color as long as those people of color have a voice in the story itself. So I think that it is not something where it's like, oh, white dudes can only make movies about white dudes. I don't necessarily know if that's true, I think, but I do think that it it is in the creation process, not just the actors that you are casting. Yes. In the creation process, I think that is a time where in the writing room you do need to have a person with with that voice. You do need to have them helping to tell their own story. Yeah. And I think that that... I think that there could be interesting things coming from that particular collaboration, as it did in this case. I don't think we should discount the fact that this is a collaboration and did seem to be a very constructive collaboration that had something very interesting to say about the intersection of these two types of people, where Mel Brooks was obviously very willing to to make a movie where people that were like him were the people being satirized, and he was willing to kind of give up that 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 posturing where we feel like we we cannot self-efface in that way. Yeah. I think that that is not something we should we should discount or that that I think we can't do in the future. Mhm. Yeah, no. That's do you uh so with that you're going to recommend Shrek 2? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, always Shrek 2. It's the best Shrek movie. Uh <laughs> Ian is very mad about that. It's the best Shrek movie. Fight me. All right. So <laughs> what's your um, recommendation? Um uh, mine's going to sound really silly right no, now it's compared fine. to you guys. Because um, I went in a different direction. I wanted to find something that had a similar kind of screwball comedy, very, um, very off the walls. That is, it is not a movie. It is a TV show, um, and it is a similarly kind of off the walls about a town of people who are just bonkers town, and it is swinging for the fences. And it is not a very well loved show right now in terms of cri- like critic critics love it, but audiences are not really tuning in. So I would love to give some love to this show called Trial and Error. On NBC, uh, the first season came out last year. It's sort of a mockumentary uh, story about someone who is accused of murdering his wife. John Lithgow is the um, is in the first season, and as you can imagine, John Lithgow is swinging for the fences. Love John Lithgow. But what I'm really loving in this second season is that they have gone even broader than the first season, where they're really delving into this this town that is absurd where it, it's digging into like gen, kind of gender stuff where there's there's this idea of like the, the crazy laws that this small kind of like town in middle America has of like there's lady laws. And so there's like the idea that anytime a woman is driving, a man has to like go in front of her with a flag saying lady driver. <laughs> and like there there's they've got the assistant who every single episode they reveal a new um illness that she has or something she's like real to have face blindness in like the first season and like a bunch of other stuff but in this season it's revealed that she has like uh every time she like gets upset she has like 
selective spontaneous combustion. Or like if you if you alarm her, she jumps ten feet in the air. It's like French jumping man disease. Yeah, it's, it's really it's silly. Really What's it called silly. again? Uh, trial and error. It's uh, on and Hulu. the and the Hulu. um the client that they are uh, defending in the second season is Kristen Chenoweth. And she's who delightful. Is making me who made me think a lot. I was watching Madeline Kahn last night, and it made me think a lot of her character in this one, where it's a similar kind of like. Just, just, she's just she's like, just having a fucking ball, and she's it's very showboaty. She's like the the person that owns the town, so she's on trial for murder. But like people stand for her when she comes into the into the, the courtroom because she mm. bought the courtroom. Yeah, she she donated like, the money to have the courtroom made. She's like handing out <laughs> scarves to people, and she's like, "I'm not on trial for murdering etiquette." <laughs> and she's just like it's it's really fun, and she just has this, like it it's it's very broad comedy and a very silly and very fun comedy in a way that I don't think we make anymore on TV that much, and yeah. it just kind of makes me happy. Happy. That reminds me, I kind of want to skip ahead to a couple other just moments near the end of this movie while we, as we wrap up, um, because we get the, the huge plot that then comes back into play of them trying to destroy Rockridge. So Hedley Lamar enlists um, an incredibly lovely and uh, alliterative group of people <laughs> to, uh, of bad guys to come and just ransack the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, while he, this, this includes uh, everyone from Nazis to clans people to um, banditos to uh, b- bikers who have handlebars for their horses <laughs> and Methodists <Amazing>. and, <laughs> and, um, and while this is happening Bart and Jim the Waco kid go and enlist all of the people of color working on the railroad to come and help build a fake rock ridge to trick everyone um, all, all of the the bad guys. So Which again, there's some holes in that plan, mm-hmm. but, but there's some huge <laughs> holes in this plan. They build a toll booth in the middle of the fucking desert. I don't, I don't see a problem with it. We're gonna have to go back and get a shitload of dimes. <laughs> and they, um, but what ensues after this is a huge brawl between the group of bad guys and the group of good guys that literally breaks the movie. Breaks the reality of the movie. It just breaks the fourth wall. Pan out. We're on a studio lot. We're on a studio lot. And I I used to watch this scene as a kid and just be so tickled because I was like, oh, it's a live action episode of Looney Tunes. It's, you know. Which you said last night, too. Yeah, it's the episode where um, we're... Daffy just starts like drawing himself, and like the the hand is like drawing him with all the different Duck-a-muck. faces. Duckamuck, yes. Um, it's that. It reminds me of that, which I'm always kind of like, oh wow, that's kind of amazing to see a live action version of that. But watching it last night with a little bit more of like a critical uh, hat on, and the hat doesn't always fit right, so this could be weird. Um, I was just kind of amazed at just like kind of the the fucking gall it takes to like try and pull something like that off. Um, like Headley walking into Blazing Saddles, the movie. The mo- like walking in, buying raisinets while he comes raisinets. in. <laughs> um, and then watching a little bit of the movie just to see Bart ride up to the Grumman Chinese Theater on a horse and then say, shit, and then get out of there. After doing a raisinette spit take. Yep. Oh, Amazing. man. Um, I love a good spit take. Well, it's kind of, um, I forget for what role. It might have been for Taggart, but... Um, Mel Brooks apparently ran into John Wayne uh, somewhere on the lot and was like, hey, I'm making this cowboy spoof. I would love for you to be in it. And John Wayne was like, well, let me read the script. He read the script and told him, I can't be anywhere near this movie. 
but I will be first in line to see that ending. <laughs> and so, and he crashes into this uh, this movie musical with Dom DeLuise as the uh, as the director. Apparently, he wanted Peter Sellers to do it, and after a four-hour audition session with Peter Sellers, decided to go with Dom DeLuise. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Sorry, Peter. Yeah, sorry. Thank you for your time. Uh, but it's also just fucking amazing. The French mistake. The French mistake. It's a good bit. But again, these huge, broad caricatures of, uh, you know, that it are very much kind of challenging and not and definitely not PC. I would be interested to know what percentage of the what was it a 2 million dollar budget 2.6 million um, dollar went budget. into the filming of the French mistake. <laughs> Cuz that's a pretty big set piece. It was a really big set piece. It is. I love when he just steps into the fountain. <laughs> <laughs> It's one and, of my favorite things in the world. And we get a transition from uh, hearing the N-word a lot to hearing the uh, the slur for homosexual people a lot. And, oh and it's so jarring still to hear in 2018 and yet laughing in spite of oneself. Mm-hmm. Be- because at least from the way those characters are staged and introduced and the way that they appear feels a little bit more like a reclamation of the word than a, uh, a condemnation of the person by the word. As opposed to when it's used earlier in the movie. Yeah, when it is a derogatory thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because even, I think Clement Little only says the N-word once, and it's in that joke at the beginning. When he's holding himself hostage. Oh, no, twice, I guess. Because he says in the beginning, it's like, you specifically asked for these people, and I hate to break the news to you, but my grandfather was Dutch. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. <laughs> and, right. Um, also, his pronunciation of that particular word in that bit. Um, it really it, hits the it's, ER. It's, um, it was the widest delivery of that word yes. I've heard in yes. a long time. Yes. Um, and, uh, but they crash, they continue, they go through the whole studio, they go through the cafeteria, a huge pie fight ensues, um, and the movie ends... Oh, they've got Hitler sitting in there. Hitler sitting They lose me after the bunker scene. <laughs> Mel Brooks gotta get that one in there. Love it. Oh, yeah. Um, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about that, if that's okay. Just like the yeah. Mel Brooks... Uh, um, the, and he's spoken a lot about that, about he, his particular need to like make fun of Hitler. Yeah, he uh there's a really great documentary. I'm not sure if it's on Amazon anymore. Um called The Last Laugh that is all about um Jewish comedians and storytellers and Holocaust survivors talking about um humor surrounding the Holocaust and whether or not it's okay and what one's feelings are on it. And everyone has a like so many people have different perspectives. Um and Mel Brooks is is showcased on there a lot and he feels a personal responsibility to not necessarily make fun of Germans, but make fun of Nazis and Hitler as often as possible. Yeah, and that, that expands to his, like, I think his, his in this movie, his, his making fun of, of people who, of racists, too. Mm-hmm. Of this idea that, like, the, he does not believe in the idea of, like, if we, we just need to, like, not talk about Hitler, or we need to take it seriously. I think he thinks yeah. that the best weapon that we have is to take his memory and to, and to laugh at it. Yep. Because that is the most powerful thing that we can do in reclaiming as, as you know, as, a, as victims, the, yeah. the oppressor, like, is to make fun of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see clips of that, um, of that documentary in, um, if you just want to see a few clips of it, there is, um, on YouTube, there's a video essay by Lindsay Ellis where she's talking about, um, 
various um, various comedians and their takes on um, on making fun of Hitler and whether or not we should do it, um, and, and particularly about media um, depiction of Nazis. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's where I saw a lot of the clips of, of him talking about it. And I think that he has a really good point. I, I don't know what you think, Ian. It's I mean, I've, as a Jewish person, the more the merrier. Let's make fun of this guy. Yeah. He's, yeah. Fuck it. Do like it. Laughed, like, <laughs> Mel Brooks very much believes. I think he's, he's, as much of a funny guy he is, he believes laughter is one of the greatest weapons that we have. Yeah, and public ridicule is a power, yeah. powerful thing. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he talks to, and a lot of comedians talk to in that documentary, as a healing mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's something that also connects to, like you were saying, I think it's a, a point of intersection um, that he and Pryor had uh, when collaborating on this movie is this idea of we are both from pe- from societies of people, Richard Pryor still being uh, obviously part of a society of people that are being uh, publicly degraded uh, in America at the time. I'm sure Jewish people were not being as, as denigrated as African-Americans in the seventies, most definitely. Um, but you know, there was still a little bit of the, of, of the stereotyping happening and there still is to this day. But I think it's a point that having spoken to a lot of Jewish people, um, and having spoken to a fair amount of African-American friends of mine, that is a point of, of, of intersection of like, I don't know exactly what it's like for you to be uh, denigrated and to be degraded in this culture and in this society, but there is there's a there is a common interest in in looking out for one another, mm-hmm. um, in looking out for the quote unquote underdog and and to be a support for for those people, um, and so I think that that's something that that is very much on Mel Brooks' mind in this movie. Um, because even when he shows up in red face as a as a Native American um, in this movie, when Mel Brooks does that, he takes he makes him this completely Yiddish speaking Sioux Indian chief, and it's a bit that I'm not sure where I fall on. Yeah, I still don't know how I feel about it. I don't know how I feel about it. Also, because I think it's one of the few jokes in the movie that even when I was too young and not culturally aware enough to recognize the implications of doing that. I was just like not thrilled by the joke. It's not one of like the laugh out loud moments for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but even today I'm wondering, I, I, I don't know where I stand with that bit in the movie. Yeah, that's definitely a weird one. Uh, Cause anytime, I mean, especially in, in through today's lens, any sort of, Rep- painting your face to represent another culture. another culture or race is is that's that's a huge taboo as it should be. Um, so, but I don't know. I like I don't I can't decide as being neither Jewish or Native American. Um, does does I'm making, glad we cleared that up. Yes, uh, in case there's any confusion, <laughs> um, I'm a wasp um, culturally. Yeah. Um, buzz if, buzz. <laughs> Does it does it make it more permissible because he is then using his his language. own culture to make that twist of it, the 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 Yiddish? I don't know. Or is he? Or the other idea being is he hiding behind his identity for the purpose of the joke? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. That was. But again, last night that was a, it was a moment of okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I hate it, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it reminds. It's. It, I definitely have the feeling of like 
That could have been worse. It definitely could have. <laughs> I think that's like, I, I, because I also didn't remember what the joke was. So when he came out, I was like, oh God, that's right. That's in this movie. <laughs> Laws of gain. And then he started talking and I was like, oh, that, that, okay, okay cool. That could have been worse. I still don't know if it's great, but it definitely could have been worse. Yeah. <laughs> because, especially because that sequence has so many other great bits in it where it's like the, the white people wouldn't let us into their circle, circle chase. <laughs> so we created our own and it's just them riding around in a circle. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a bit that I, I've, I've been wrestling with the last few times I've watched this movie and I'm still kind of wrestling with it. Um, well, Mel Brooks, if you're listening and you'd like to chime in on that. Yeah. Feel free. Hit us up. Not another film podcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, I think that that, that's, that's pretty much where, where we are on this movie. It is a classic, classic film. Uh, I guess we'll just go down the very simple, do we recommend watching this movie in 2018? Rob? Why haven't you yet already? Yes, yeah. go watch Blazing Saddles. It's it's in my probably top 20 to 15 favorite movies of all time. Watch this movie. Duh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> go watch Blazing Saddles. Um, I do want to ask a question, a couple questions now. Because uh, we talked a little bit before about how I feel like Madeline Kahn is the MVP of this movie. Remember and that Minority Report episode where Ian bitched about how long the episode is going? This one's not going that long. All right, all I'll right. edit some stuff out. All right. <laughs> um... Who do we? Who do you guys think is the MVP of this movie? If you had to say it, who is? Who would you guys say? Um, much as I love Madeline Kahn, and as much as mm-hmm. I think she brings to this movie, I think I got to give it to Cleavon Little mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I I feel like he I don't know I, he found the perfect balance of everything that role needs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was he was smooth, he was friendly, he was unapologetically himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I I, I got to give it to him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great write, like writing for that character too, because he never has to. He everything he does, he wins over the town. He's Everyone Bugs Bunny. He's, He's Bugs, Bugs Bunny. Bunny in this movie. Mm-hmm. He wins over everyone by with his wit and with his his just like being himself, mm-hmm. um, which is just awesome. And uh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna have to go with the same. I think he's he's pretty much like the linchpin of this movie. I think that as great as everything around it is, the movie itself would not have worked if he if that character did not work. Yeah. I think that it, and he is I think so crucial to making some of the the racial commentary work the way that it does. Mm-hmm. Because of the particular way that the particular self-awareness that he has and the way that they let that character kind of break the fourth wall and be aware of the absurdity. I think you kind of have to have that character that that is that is letting the audience know that it's okay to laugh at these people. Mm-hmm. I think that you, if otherwise, I, th- I think if it had pl- been played a little bit more serious, I think that we would have not known what we were, what we were supposed to take from it. And I think that, that I, it works really, really well having him from the beginning when, when all of the, the white people, when white men are singing those songs and he's just sitting there looking at them like, how, what fucking idiots they are. <laughs> I think that that is so crucial to the movie and yeah. he does it while being so charming. And I, we haven't even talked about like one of my favorite parts of the movie, which is his line, the, where the white women at, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the best parts of the entire movie. The, the bait for the Klansman. And, and he, the, and he never gets riled up. Yeah, like I he think, is, mm-hmm. he is just. 
cool the whole time. And the self-awareness with yeah. which he not only laughs at, at the racists, but he uses the, their racism against them. Mm-hmm. That, like, yes. that, like, the, the fact that he is so self-aware and so and knows these people and is so fucking done with it that he's just like, I guess I'm just going to fucking hold myself hostage because he's aware of that duality of like, oh, they hate me and are afraid of me, but also they think that I, they also think that I'm this like helpless victim. <laughs> and so I'm just going to use the both sides of the racism against them. The fact that he like, it's such a brilliant, brilliant scene. I think that scene is so fucking good that he's just like, with one line. With one, line. With one yeah. line and just like, and like, well, somebody help that poor man. It's uh, brilliant. Um, yeah, and of course, honorable mentions go to pretty much everybody else in right. this movie. Right, there's, 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 there's not a weak link in this movie. There really isn't. It's, uh, it's uh, slim, from Slim Pickens to the guy that plays his sidekick, who yeah. I forget what that actor's name mm-hmm. is. To Tamongo. To Alex Karras. Yeah. Um, Everyone has at least one like standout moment. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know the uh, I don't know if you guys remember the old um, commercials for Wendy's. Do you remember the Where's the Beef? Yeah. So did you know that the woman, have you ever seen such cruelty? And the up yours inward woman, yeah. that's the Where's the Beef woman. No shit. No way. Fact. Wow. Was that, did she do Where's the Beef before this movie? No, I think this movie had to have been first. Okay, because that would have been even funnier if they had specifically gone out to cast have the you Where's ever the Beef. Seen such beef. <laughs> the where's, the <laughs> where's the Beef lady as just like this, this incredible racist. I also want to give an honorable mention to that one townsperson lady who I thought the reaction shots were so funny with the glasses. Oh, yeah. The one's like, oh, I'm scared of... People of Rockridge. God, she's so fucking great. You are the true asshole (laughs) instinct. (laughs) The supreme asshole. Oh. Oh, my God. Uh, Favorite bit. Favorite bit or line from the movie. If you got a favorite bit, what's, what's one... Other than the, in, can we say other than the entirety of Madeline Kahn? Other than, yeah, I'm so tired putting, putting that on the pedestal right now. Are there, what's, what's your other favorite bit or line from the movie that just gets you every time? Um, um, gosh, that's, that's like, that's a hard question because they're all gold. If you have one, go. It kind of depends on which time I'm viewing it. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I, I love the bit where he's holding himself hostage. Yeah. I, that, that's never not going to be funny to me. Um, but I do. I always fucking laugh at the where the white women at. Yeah. I, I think that's so fucking it's funny. So funny. And his delivery is so perfect. I think he's so great. I also love the, uh, the, the classic, like, oh, your hand's super steady. This is the hand I shoot with. And it's just <laughs> shaking all over the place. I also, also honorable mention to the likes. Well, what do you like to do? I don't know. Drink. Oh, play chess. Play chess. Like, they're screw. <laughs> and then he's Let's like, play chess. Let's play chess. Um, I think uh, I, last night, the one uh, I'm always a fan of, the uh, the hug between Harvey and Slim. Shh. It's just a man and a horse being hung. <laughs> <laughs> or every time he bumps his head going back in the window. Oh my God. That makes me laugh, too, for some reason. The ducky. Uh, not uh, the ducky. The froggy. Uh, the frog. Daddy love froggy. Daddy loves froggy. froggy. Love froggy. froggy love daddy. <laughs> I, yeah, mine. The one that really got me last night that I think I, I just always put up there behind the hostage, holding yourself hostage and I'm so tired is the uh, the the paddle, paddle ball scene. Oh, with, yeah. Um, with all of the members of state. With them all going around. <laughs> Which, again, one long take of just like, you know. <laughs> Play with these, gentlemen, instead of other things. <laughs> so, 
Find this. It is? No, it's Headley. It is? is? Mm. It's 1874. You can sue her. He slaps him in the face. (laughs) Puts one leg up on a chair so you can see he's just in his boxer shorts. I I also love when, uh, oh God, when's the scene where the horse gets punched in the face? Oh, Mongo. Mongo 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 running through town. Punches the horse in the face and then, like, oh, Mongo just a pawn. (laughs) Mongo just pawn in Game of Life. Oh my God. No, Mongo straight. Candygram for Mongo. Mongo the most, like candy. <laughs> the most Looney Tunes moment in the movie, I think, is the Candygram for Mongo. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's such a... Quite literally, they play the music. Yes. Oh, man. Awesome. We close the chapter on a great, great Mel Brooks movie. If this is your favorite Mel Brooks movie, or if you have another one that you would like to contest against it, please make sure that you comment on our Facebook page, comment on our Instagram. Remember to follow us on both of those platforms. Like, rate, review, subscribe. Follow us on uh, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, all of that good stuff. Send us an email at notanotherfilmpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, Lauren, you got anything to add? No? No, I'm good. All right. Do you want to plug anything? Um, no, not really. I mean, right. like if people are com- in Michigan, they can come to the Michigan Shakespeare Festival. Come to the Michigan Shakespeare Festival. We've, uh, when the time we post this, we will have two more weeks of uh, stuff in Canton. We are performing... We are performing uh, Measure for Measure, The Tempest, and Alfred Ben's The Rover in Canton, Michigan. Please feel free to come through and see that. And if you're in the Chicagoland area in the fall, please make sure you check out Frankenstein at Lifeline Theater, which Lauren will be a part of. Yay. Yeah. Uh, and thank you very much for listening, folks. Bye. That was worth it. <laughs>